Thank you for joining us on the Fellowship Baptist Church podcast, a podcast of preaching and teaching from the ministries at Fellowship Baptist Church. Fellowship Baptist Church exists to gather, grow, give, and go for the glory of God. Have you ever been walking somewhere and felt unstable when you took a step? You felt just a little unsure about the steps that, that you were taking. Maybe you like to climb uh, on the river, and you see that rock with a little bit of green on it, and you step on it, and you wonder, is my foot going to slip, and I'm going to fall right into the river and have to clean myself up, um, or am I going to be able to make it? Is it going to be solid ground? Um, maybe you've been on a job site somewhere and you've got some scaffolding and you wonder about the guy who put the scaffolding together because you wonder if it's, it's put together well enough to hold you or to hold the five of you that are up there. Uh, it feels a little unshaky. You've gone up on that ladder and you've got up to the very edge of it and you wonder how can I hold on? Um, what will happen if I fall? You feel a little unsure. Maybe you're a parent and you've been navigating the landmine of Legos through, the ki- through your kid's floor, trying not to step on those horrible, terrible things, um, trying to get to your child, um, and you feel unstable and unsure in that. Or maybe you've just gotten to a place in your life where walking is not easy. Your legs don't work as well as they used to work, that, that you feel unstable, and so you pay attention to the ground a little bit more, where you wonder, can I step here? What will happen if I take a misstep? And it confuses you about whether or not you should continue on this bumpy ground. You know, when those things happen, we get unsure, don't we? We, get, uh, we, we lose our confidence. We, we hesitate. We become afraid. Sometimes we, can, we might even completely avoid a situation if we feel like the ground is not safe to walk on, if it's unsure to be there. Now, that's not only for us true physically, is it? But it's also true for us spiritually. When we are spiritually unsure, we may completely avoid a situation. When we are spiritually unsure, we are unconfident in what God is calling us to do. When we are spiritually unsure, we hesitate. We are afraid to answer the call that he has put on our life. And we miss the mission that he has called us to be about. You know, the good thing is, though, that God knows our weaknesses. God knows that you would come to this place in your life where you could be unsure, where you don't know what is the next step, that you don't know what to do. And God is supremely gracious in that. That God is kind to those who feel unsure. That he is slow to anger. That he does not get frustrated with us. And he actually tells us that when we are unsure, that we are to to come to him. That when we're weary, when we're heavy, when we don't understand what we're supposed to do, that God calls us, doesn't he, to come to him. That he will carry us. That all our burdens can be found in him. Because God is compassionate for his children, isn't he? And that's exactly who we are. And that compassion that he has for us, it, it, it awakens our hearts to a deeper confidence in him. A deeper confidence in his goodness. A deeper confidence in what he has done for us and what he will do for us and through us. 
And it leads us to live a life that pleases Him. And so today I want to talk about that confidence and where you can find it and where you can take hold of it in unshaky times. Because people, the, the confidence is not in you. And not in your abilities, and not in your sanctification, and not in your growth. It is in Him, and what He has done, and what He will continue to do. And so today, if you're taking notes, I want you to take this idea. Confidence in the gospel helps us to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Confidence in the good news of Jesus Christ will help you, will help us as a church, to live lives, to do what He calls us to do, and to please Him. So if we want to live a life that's pleasing to God, if we want to do what he calls us to do, if we want to put off sin and put on righteousness, if we want to to be transformed, we need confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what we'll be talking about today, and that's what I think here Paul is trying to give to the people that he loves. So let's talk about that. We need a God-given certainty that will help us live lives that please and honor God. So let's talk about Christians need confidence in the gospel. Now, where am I getting that from this text? Because if you'll notice in this text, you don't see that word confidence here, right? It's not here in this text. So where am I getting that from? And you should ask that because if a preacher comes up and he says, this is what God's word says, and it doesn't say it, then we shouldn't listen to him, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, this is the standard, not me. So how do we get there? He talks about here in verse 9 that he, as he hears about their faith and um, he is praising God for that, that he is praying for them and what he's asking for them in verse 9 is that they be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So when Paul speaks about being filled with the knowledge of his will, what does he mean by that filling? Well, it could mean that that what he wants for the church is that they would understand God's will for their lives. That is one way to interpret that. But it's probably more likely that Paul wants these Christians, these believers in Colossians and us today, to understand that, uh, God's will, not for me particularly, but his will as in his grand will, his cosmic will, his redemptive will for all of mankind, his big will. He does have a plan for your life. He does have a will for your life. That's absolutely true. But he also has a big plan for us, for God's people, from the very beginning of time to the very end of time, to bring all things underneath Christ and to bring all glory and honor to God. He wants us to be filled with a knowledge of how God plans to bring about the full redemption of God's people. In other words, he wants you and me to be filled with a knowledge of the gospel. Because the gospel does save, but it also transforms this entire world. It changes everything. Everything now falls underneath the kingdom of God. Now notice that Paul doesn't just want them to know about the gospel or to believe in the gospel, but to be filled with the gospel. That's that word he uses, filled with the gospel. Now what does that mean, to be filled with the gospel? Well, if you take a cup of water and you fill it up, It has no more room for anything else, does it? It's filled to the brim, and it it has no more room for anything in there. If you fill up a building to its capacity, 
you start having to turn away people. I'm, I, I remember going to a uh, conference one time, and it was in Atlanta, and they had the, C, the big CNN center that's right outside the, uh, the stadium. Some of y'all been there. And it was so full of people there that they were actually turning people away. It's a massive amount of people. When it's full, nobody else can come in. When it's full, you can't put anything else in there. And the Colossian church has been under fire from these false teachers that are trying to add things to the gospel. They're saying, what Jesus has done is great, but what you need is something more, something additional. Well, we know that when we add something to the gospel or we take something away from the gospel, we lose the gospel completely. We actually decimate the the very nature of the gospel when we add anything to it. An extra step is too far. One step uh, uh, that's not close enough is too far away. And the Colossians are wondering, have we got this gospel right? Have these other teachers have come in, do we have this correct? And so Paul's prayer for them, he's begging God, he's asking God that they would be full of this knowledge of the gospel so none of these other false beliefs, these false understandings would come in and decimate the gospel in their lives. Because the gospel and their confidence in the gospel has been shaken. They're unsure. And they're wondering if the rock that they're standing on, that they've been taught, that Epaphras has passed down to them, is the true gospel, or if they need something else. So Paul wants them to be, to be filled with this knowledge of the gospel, and therefore have confidence, be full of the, the cosmic redemptive plan of God for all people. They, he wants them to be totally confident that these things are true, and so that they're not swayed by false teachers. So Paul wants us to be full of the gospel, unswayable, so that we would live lives that honor the Lord. And so that means that we are confident. If we are full of the gospel, we are confident in the gospel. We understand it, but we also depend on it. We recognize it. We recognize that nothing else but the gospel saves so that nothing else can come and distract us from the truth of the gospel. See, when we are confident in the gospel and false teaching comes, we're able to hear it, understand it, and push it away. We don't allow it to come into our minds because we know what the truth is. And when we hear the falsehoods that come, we we recognize them and understand what they truly are, that they they sound nice, They they may come from good speakers, They may even come from well-meaning people, but they are false, and we should put them away. You know, um, false teaching doesn't come at you by just denying, outright denying the gospel many times. It's subtle, isn't it? It sounds kind of like the gospel, but not quite right, you know? Like you just feel sometimes when you hear it, like something's not quite right there. Sometimes you don't even know what it is, but you, you can't put your finger right on what the point is. But something just doesn't sound like the good news that I've heard and believed. It, you know, false teachings like a, a, a special forces, they, they sneak across the border at night. Nobody sees them. They do their job. They come back, right? That's why we have to be full of the gospel because it's not going to come to you and knock on your door up front many times. Well, I guess you know, the Mormons do come and knock on your door. Um, but, um, it, but many times it comes to you in very subtle 
ways, doesn't it? And so we have things like the prosperity gospel. And people like Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar and Kenneth Copeland, and they don't deny Jesus, but they emphasize material and physical uh, prosperity, and they redefine the idea of faith to mean a power that you have within yourself to cast a vision into the world so that you can have material um, wealth and that you can have health in your life. Again, it's subtle. All glory goes to Jesus, but who is the Jesus they're talking about? Some theologians emphasize the good works of Jesus, like loving your neighbor as Jesus called us to do, but minimize the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. They make Jesus out to be the ultimate martyr, the ultimate teacher, and that his crucifixion shows how evil the world can be, but they don't talk about our, the own evil in our own hearts that Jesus died for. Others preach a gospel that's all about making a decision. We're walking down the aisle and they use manipulation tactics to get you to, to get emotional and come down, and yet they tell you to have faith, but they actually don't tell you what to have faith in. I promise you I've heard preachers talk about having faith in Jesus, but they actually don't tell you what Jesus did. And see, if the gospel is not preached, what are people to believe in? These attacks may not seem noticeable at first, but we can find ourselves drawn away from the gospel if we're not filled, if we're not confident, if we're not certain of the truth of that gospel. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, I don't want that to happen. I don't want to be drawn away. I've seen others in my life drawn away. I've heard these messages sometimes, and they are, and I get confused. So what do I do? How can I uh, uh, be more confident in the gospel? Well, there are things that we can do, but we have to recognize, as Paul puts it here, that he is asking God, that it is a God-given work, that ultimately it is the Spirit of God that confirms the truth of God into our hearts. Romans 8 tells us that assurance doesn't come from more knowledge, it comes from the very Spirit of God. It comes from the Spirit confirming those things into our life. And so ultimately, we are dependent upon God and His work in our lives to transform us. And therefore, as Christians, what we should be doing is doing what Paul is doing here and praying for ourselves and for our neighbors and for our children that we would have confidence in the gospel, that we would beg God to, to take the gospel that we have believed, that our children have believed, that our grandchildren have believed, and make it so embedded into their life that when they hear false teaching, they know it. When they hear these, these, these untruths that sound like truth, that they would recognize it, that we are praying that God would work in their lives. And so the deacons, as, as you guys are praying for your people, one of the things that you should be praying for them is that they would have confidence in the gospel. And Tim, as you're praying for your youth, we pray that they would have confidence in the gospel. As we put out those prayer guides, as, as the church is praying for each other and you're praying for people by name, pray that they would have confidence in the gospel. We pray that for ourselves because we know that we are weak and fallen and we can fall just like anybody else. And we would pray that God would give us confidence in the gospel. But why does Paul think that this is so important? Why is it important for Christians 
to be filled with the knowledge of God. Well, he tells us in the very next verse, in verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So the purpose behind the filling of uh, of the knowledge of God's will, the confidence in the gospel, is that we would walk or live in a manner that honors and is worthy of God, that is pleasing to him, fully pleasing to him. That is the goal of being filled with this knowledge of the gospel, that we would live a life that pleases the Lord. Because confidence in the gospel does this. It leads to a life that is transformed, that now honors God and lives for God. And so the purpose of your confidence increase is that your life would now increase as well in living for Him. Notice that we are to to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, worthy to the Lord, pleasing to Him. You know, there are two ways to really live, and and you can either live to please God or you can live to, to please others and yourself. And God makes it real clear that we are to live a life that is pleasing to Him. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. We are to imitate Him. Do what He says, just like a child follows her parents. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Our lives, like the life of Christ, should be the aroma that pleases God. And therefore, we need to live a life that pleases Him in every way. 2 Corinthians verse 14 says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Notice that. Again, that, that, that smell we put on. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of, from death to death, to the other are fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. Notice that he says that as we live, we put out this aroma of Christ to people, but for some, it smells like a rotting corpse. To others, it smells like life itself. Who is sufficient for these things? Not us. It's ultimately up to God, but we are to live a life in such a way that the aroma of Christ goes out, and then Christ does what he does with it whether it is to those who are leading to death or to those that are leading to life, we are to live a life pleasing to Him and allow Him to do what He does. Therefore, we can't be people pleasers. That can't be our great motivation. Now, we want to please people as we please Christ. We want to love our neighbor and be kind and gracious. We should not be intentionally jerks. But we should live a life that pleases God and then let the chips fall where they may. We must stand for what is right, no matter what the world says, no matter what our neighbor says, no matter what our family says. Because we are confident in the gospel. Because that is a really hard thing to do when you're under the pressures of this world. To do what is right in the middle of pressure is extremely difficult. And if you're not confident in the gospel, it's easy to take a step outside of the will of God. But the gospel assures us that Jesus is real, that what he says is true, that he has loved us despite our very sinfulness, 
and it reassures us that God's way, no matter the rejection we might face, is better than anything else. And so we should live a life that makes God smile. The happiness of God should be our pursuit, both as individuals and as a church. And so that is a hard question that you need to ask yourself. Does your life, do your decisions, do your words, do your actions please the Lord? That's a hard question, isn't it? Probably the answer is not as much as they should, right? That's true. There's not as much as they should. And maybe that's the question we should stop a little bit. We're in a, we're in a world that's very fast-paced, and we should stop a little bit. And we should uh, say, before we do something, will this please the Lord? Will this honor the Lord? In a day and time of quick reactions, quick responses. You know, news is 24 hours a day. Response is quick. We don't even have full information, and we're already throwing out opinions, right? Got to be quick. It's not about being right. It's about being first. We have to stop and say, will this please the Lord? It's better to be second and right than to be first and wrong. This, that, that, that's what our life should be like. It should be a life that pleases God. And this is the very fruit of wisdom, which he says in verse 9. He talks about the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. When we exercise godly wisdom, we are living according to his word. We love what he loves. We hate what he hates. Godly wisdom is not, being about, uh, not about being smarter than your neighbor. It is about living a life that pleases God. That is what wisdom comes down to. Does my life look like what God wants it to look like? Now, what are the ways that we can, like, what are the ways that God helps us to live a life pleasing to Him? Now, we can talk about reading the Word. We know His Word, and we know that truth there, and we read it and absorb it, and we take it in, and that's a very good thing to do. We can talk about prayer and personal devotionals, where we, we spend time with God in prayer, and we come to know Him through that, and we spend time worshiping Him as an individual. Those things are very good, and we've talked about those before, but I want to talk about one way that we can learn to please God, that God transforms us into God-pleasers, that we don't talk about as much, that we don't see as much, and that is the church. Paul is writing this letter to a group of people, the church, isn't he? A local body. It's going to be read to them publicly for everybody to hear. For this entire group. So when he says you, he's talking about y'all. He's talking about us. Because the church is a unit, a body, an essential body. Now we think of the church as a place to go, don't we? Or something that we do. I'm going to go to church. I can't wait till church starts. I don't want to go to that church. You know, we, we think of it as a place to go or a location. What time does church start? But Christians need to understand that the church is more than that. Christians need to understand that the church is a people. 
a group. And we need the church. We need each other to help us live a life that is pleasing to him. Now, some of you are saying, of course, I understand that. I, I, I know that. You're nodding your head and, and, and saying, I get that we, are, we need each other to do that. But this is one of the major deficiencies in the American church is that we are overly individualistic. We are all about our personal rights and personal freedoms. And that, that might be really great for government. But when it comes to the Lord, we don't have rights. We are His. As Paul calls himself, well, the thing he calls himself more than anything else in Scripture is a slave to Christ Jesus. Now, it's translated many times servant, but that word is slave. I am a slave to Christ Jesus. He owns me. And we, as American Christians, are too private. We're called a family, but we don't act like a family. We don't, a family talks about their needs. A family talks about their struggles. A family has a, 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 has a group that they, can, a, that they can open up their hearts and their personal business with. See, we see our personal lives as nobody else's business, right? That's, that's for me. You know, I got my church life and I got my, my home life, and those things are, are, are separate, separating of church and state kind of things. And that is not what we see in the Word of God, though. And we're missing one of the main ways that God wants to transform our very lives. See, we see in Scriptures uh, the church shared life together. They were open about their weaknesses. They confessed sins to one another. They go to brothers and sisters and see the sins in their lives and, and, and talk to them about it. They open their homes to one another. As, as the proverb says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. But if, if the iron never touches each other, what does it do? Nothing. If you keep it apart, there's no sharpening that goes on. You can't be transformed. And you are missing the transformative work of God in your life if, if the people of God are not coming in, in contact with all your bumps and bruises, and weaknesses, and struggles. If you feel no one wants to hear about your problems, or if you're defensive when people challenge you in your lifestyle, you won't grow the way that God wants to grow you. He is giving you a gift of the body of Christ, and we're not using it. If you feel like you have to put on a, 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 a nice suit and tie and a nice dress just to be around church people, you're missing the very heart of the gospel, which says to come to him to God boldly. If we can go into the very presence of God boldly, then I can go with other sinners and strugglers and say, I have brokenness in my life. I have been hurt by people. I have struggles. I have things that I believe that I know I shouldn't believe. I have all these kind of pains. My, my family's in a mess. And God is offering you people that will walk with you through that, that will hold your hand, that will guide you through it. They are his hands and his feet, but we are not using the very hands and feet that God gives us. And so you and I, and I, and I say this, I am very much in the same kind of thinking as you. And I have not got by this. 
We need to get over our insecurities and open up our lives to the transforming work of the gospel that is given to us through the grace of God in the church of Jesus Christ. And then, and then we will begin to live a life that is pleasing to God. So if you wonder why the transformative work of God is not happening in your lives, it may be that you are not using the greatest gift that he has given you, the church right beside you. So what does it mean to live a life that is pleasing to God? When God inspired Paul to write these words, what did he give him and say, this is what it looks like? if you want to please me. We see that in in verses uh, 10, second half of 10, and 11 and 12. In the second half of 10, it says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In verse 11, it talks about being strengthened with all power. In verse 12, giving thanks. And there's a connection between the first two and the second two. They kind of parallel each other. And so I'm going to take those two ideas together as two units. So we are going to talk about bearing fruit or growing in fruit and growing in knowledge. That is one way that we live a life pleasing to God. We grow in our fruit and we grow in the knowledge of God. A life or actions that reflect a heart that is rooted in the gospel is what it means to bear fruit. We, we were, Jennifer read a verse about the lifestyle of bearing fruit, right? A gospel-centered life, a bearing or growing fruit kind of life that shows the transformation of the gospel. See, the gospel is the root. Our lives should bear the fruit of that. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 makes it clear that we are not saved by works, but God works in us in a transformative way and then gives us works to do. Now, that could be loving each other. It could be loving the lost with the gospel. As we, as Christians, we are called to be disciples and to make disciples. That God has given every disciple that task. What pleases the Lord is when people share his story, share his goodness with others, and help them to follow him. And connected to that is in growing or increasing in the knowledge of God. We bear fruit for God, and we increase in our knowledge of God, because an increase in the knowledge of God helps us and supports our growth in following God. Right knowledge creates a right living. And so the study of God, the study of different doctrines, is not meant to fill our heads with a lot of facts about God. And it never has been to fill our heads with just a, a, a lot of facts. Deep study of God leads to deep love for God. Let me give you an example of this. I remember this from my seminary days, and we have a, a class called Systematic Theology, which is basically taking a, 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 an idea like prayer and saying, what does the Bible say about prayer? And so they take it into, and they write books, and very thick books, and you read, and and, um, so I'm in seminary, and my professor's name is Bruce Ware, and he's there. Um, and Bruce was a small little guy, but he was very 
um, uh, energetic. You could tell when he was getting passionate because he was starting to rock, you know. He'd do one of these kind of things where he'd rock on the, from his heels to his toes. And he'd rock up, you know. And, and, and you could tell he, it, it, it changed from teaching to preaching in, in, in a couple seconds because these deep things of God made his heart happy. Well, he got angry at us one day. I'll say us. Um, um, and he noticed or heard that while he was teaching, everybody had a little computer at that time, people were playing little games like Minesweeper or, or, or stuff like that. And his, his comment to us, in that, it with a lot of um, intensity in his comment, was that we are not talking here uh, uh, about mathematics. We are not talking here about chemistry. We are not talking here about some random English book that, and, and diving into the depths of some author's mind. We are talking about the very nature of the God who has saved us and created us, and how dare you play games while we're talking about the deep things of God. Because to him, to him, it was not about teaching some facts about God. It was about a transformed life that came from the knowledge and the depth of God. And so when we study God and study his works and study the scriptures, it is not just work for theologians. It is not just work for seminary professors. It is the work of the average everyday Christian to know the God who loved them more and more and more. So the question is, do you know your Savior? Do you have a desire to know your Savior? If you have no desire to know him, I question whether or not you have ever met him. Because why would you not want to know more of the person who saved you? Why would you not want to enjoy more of him for all of eternity? See, heaven in eternity is where the full knowledge of God comes to light. If that's boring here, it's going to be boring there. And you may not be going there. It pleases God when we want to know Him more. And as we know Him more, we grow in more fruit. We live a life that is pleasing to Him because we know what pleases God. We know what honors God. And then in verse 11 and 12, talks about growing in strength and growing in thankfulness. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and giving thanks to the Father who is qualified to for you to share in the inheritance. Notice it says that we are being strengthened. That is God who does the strengthening. It is him that works in us to strengthen him. The ultimate reason that we are strengthening God is that God works through his spirit in his people. But notice what he calls strength there. What he calls strength is very different than what we think of strength. We think of strength as power, getting people to do what we want them to do, our force of will, making things happen. That's what we think of as strength, right? And that is not the strength he's talking about here. There is a type of strength that is sitting underneath a, a, a pair of weights and it's pushing it off your chest and it's making that weight move. There's another type of strength, right, where you're running a race and it's long, right? And the next step is the hardest one. His strength here that he's talking about is endurance with patience and joy. See, what the world calls strength is very different than what the Bible calls strength. It is not about force. 
is not about increasing our power or our might, but it is not, it is not about demanding from people. It is about patient endurance. That is the strength that pleases the Lord. The strength that pleases the Lord is when a mother or father controls their temper with their children, not the parent that scares their kids into obedience. You can be one of those, right? Some of us have suffered underneath those. Some of us have experienced some of those. Some of us have to look back and say, we maybe went too far. As a community of believers, we learn patience and endurance from each other. That means that God has intentionally put people in this room that will bother you on purpose to strengthen your endurance and to strengthen your patience so that you can live a life that's pleasing to him. That God intentionally puts things in your life that are not easy so that you would endure. So that you would learn what it means to endure with joy and gladness. And we remember that we do this because of the patience that God had with us. Hebrews 12, 3, For consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility from, uh, from sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and give up. Again, notice what he's saying. Remember and be confident in the gospel and the endurance that Jesus showed so that you will not wear out. So that you will not grow weary. So that you will not give up. So that when we think and consider deeply about all that Jesus suffered for us, that suffered under sinners like us, we find strength to endure. He has endured far more than I ever will, so I can follow in his footsteps and endure and take up my cross and follow him. And that pleases the Lord. And closely related to that is giving thanks joyfully. Because when we are enduring rightly, we have a life that thanks God and rejoices in the God who saved us. We are praising God for the acts of God leading us to worship the God who saved us. What pleases God is when we are thankful for him and thankful to him. And we have many reasons to bless his name. And the number one that he points out here is that he has qualified us to share in the inheritance in the saints in life. Our thanksgiving is based in what God has already done for us and through us and to us. He has qualified you and me to share in the inheritance. See, just like the book of Exodus, we were enslaved and captive to a dark and dangerous force that would take our lives. And yet God, through his miraculous work and his sovereign power, has transferred you from one kingdom to a promised land to come. He has made you, made you so that you would inherit this inheritance. He has qualified you. Now, you and I are not qualified. When we take up our little cards to the door of heaven, we don't get in. Nothing we have done has earned our way into heaven. Even as Isaiah says, all our good works, the good things you do, are like 
filthy rags before the Lord. So if the, the best of me is a dirty rag, then what is the worst of me? And yet God in his great grace and mercy has transferred my card to his card, saying, no, he is qualified to get in. Well, what makes me qualified to get in? How can I be qualified to come in to a place where I'm not qualified to come into? It is the very Son of God, Jesus, coming to earth who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we most certainly deserve to die. It has qualified you to inherit what only He deserves. He he has removed from your life everything that needs to be removed. He has transferred into your life everything that needs to be transferred. All that is needed, he has supplied. His death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God makes sure that you and I, if we have faith in him, are qualified. So my qualification is not here. And when I get to the door of heaven, and they say, why should you come in? There is no reason that I give, but there is one who is on the other side of heaven who calls out, he is qualified. He speaks a better word than I do. And when that truth is embedded into your heart and it fills you to the very brim your life will begin to change here and now. And every trial and every challenge will not destroy, but will cause you to worship in joy and in thankfulness. And that is how we live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Which brings us back to the very beginning, confidence in the gospel. Confidence that the good news is true. Confidence in God's mercy and grace for me and for you. Confidence in the inheritance to come. Confidence that will lead to a life that pleases Him. May God grant us this confidence by filling us to the very brim with His gospel. Thank you for joining us in our podcast today. To find out more about Fellowship Baptist Church, simply go to fellowshiplexington.com or join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1030 if you're ever in the Lexington, South Carolina area. Fellowship Baptist Church exists together, grow, give, and go for the glory of God.